You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit with Dr. Michael Rogers, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Turn in your Bible or use the Pew Bible to the first book of Scripture, Genesis, the 11th chapter. About six months ago, I began looking at Genesis, and we conclude that look today because it was always my intent to not go beyond chapter 11. Genesis actually divides uh, somewhat clearly at the end of chapter 11 because you begin the calling and story of Abraham in chapter 12, which unfolds like a downhill slope the rest of the way to chapter 50 as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph have their stories told in the remainder of Genesis. I wanted to survey what we call the foundation of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. And we will come back, I hope, sometime and look at the career of Abraham. But we're going to be turning to something else in the New Testament next Sunday. I'm going to read Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Listen to God's holy word. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the whole earth. And this is God's holy word. Quite a few years ago, the... Arizona Republic, which is a southwestern newspaper, carried a profile about a Phoenix businessman whose name is Gordon Hall. I believe he's not really a national name, but in that region, Mr. Hall is quite well known. At the time that this article about him appeared, he was not yet 40 years old, But he was on his way to becoming a billionaire. And the article was featuring his business kingdom and his personal kingdom, I guess you could call it. It showed pictures of his amazing and vast home. 55,000 square feet was his home in Paradise Valley, Arizona. It looked like a futuristic spaceship parked on a hilltop overlooking many miles of desert. 
Gordon Hall had achieved his financial goals, so he said at least, by the age of 33. He had, in fact, far exceeded his lifetime financial goals. And so he was telling the interviewer how he now had new goals, and they centered mainly on his physical life and health and his attention to medical science and nutrition and and many other things that he was quite finicky about in the determination that he had a hope that he would live to be 120 years old. That was his goal. And he figured, I've achieved my financial goals. Why can't I achieve that? Mr. Hall gave some of his personal philosophy to the interviewer. Here's one thing that he said I found of great interest. Quote, we are down here to exist as intelligent spirits. And as man is now, God once was. And as God is now, man can become. And so I believe I can do anything. My genetic makeup is to become a God. If God in heaven can create whole worlds, so can I. Unquote. Gordon Hall. Well, I'm inclined to write this man off as a wealthy crackpot, but I also think he typifies people who have lived throughout the human centuries. And maybe especially the kind of people we're reading about in Genesis 11 today who lived thousands of years ago and founded the ancient Iraqi city that we call Babylon and the Bible nicknames Babel. Now, you see, Genesis 10 and 11, I haven't done anything with chapter 10. We were in 9 last time. 10 and 11 are a unified passage, which really is little more than a lengthy genealogy. If you want to scan those two chapters, you see when this one has lived this many years, he begat, and then they lived, and that son came. And that's chapters 10 and 11. The purposes of these two chapters is to trace for you in some detail the line of genealogy that connects Noah, whose death is recorded at the end of chapter 9, and Abraham, whose story begins in chapter 12. So these two chapters are a bridge of genealogy. In the midst of the genealogy, there are two breaks, or you might call them sort of parentheses. In chapter 10, there's a break at verse 8 to tell us very briefly about Nimrod, who was a mighty warrior in the earth, a mighty hunter, a man of renown. And if you glance, you'd see that 10.10 says the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon. Nimrod is the famed founder of that kingdom of Babylon. And then comes this other parenthesis in chapter 11 that I read for you, verses 1 to 9, that functions a bit like kind of a flashback. It isn't necessarily positioned in the exact spot in the genealogy where these things happened, we think, but rather it looks back and says at some point in the development of all these generations of people, this happened. The story or the incident of the building of this city and tower called Babel at Babylon. And it was done, as you read here, in violation of God's command to man and to Noah and his generations that you populate the earth, scatter over the earth and populate it. You see, men said, well, enough of that scattering. We want to come together and be strong as men in one spot. 
Well, we know that Babylon has been an ancient center for human development and military might and, yes, considerable civilization. Even as we continue to fight a war in that territory today, we're fighting on ground that has some of the most ancient associations in all of human culture there in the land of Iraq. And you find as you go through the Old Testament that Babylon keeps coming up. It keeps being featured. The book of Revelation actually talks about Babylon, referring to it not just as a specific city in the Middle East, but as a kind of name or code name for any place where the rule and glory of man is exalted above God. And so Revelation talks about Babylon the Great, and it's using a kind of code phraseology when it says that. After the fiasco we read here in Genesis 11, Babylon did become a great kingdom many centuries after. And you can go into the time when it was a rival power that uh, subdued Jerusalem and and Israel. And you read about uh, the real king, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4 has a statement by Nebuchadnezzar in his time, which is, again, after what we're reading about here. But here he was in all of his arrogance, and Daniel 4.30 puts these words in the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my own mighty power, the residence for the glory of my majesty? Well, there's an egomaniac for you. History remembers Babylon as a place where the human vanity and striving for power and fame probably almost reached its apex, where people had what I'm calling today Babylonian hearts, hearts that want to assert the greatness of humanity in opposition to the power and might of God. And we ask today, what does God think about the assertions of our Babylonian hearts? We don't live in that Middle Eastern land, and yet, The kinds of assertions and pride that we read about here certainly live in us in the ways that we proudly look to politics and materialism and culture and the arts and technology and any other of the many fine things that mankind develops. And we begin to trust in them and we build little kingdoms out of these things and use those kingdoms to take away our trust, and our worship in the holy God. (coughs) We also find in this passage that speech is a blessing of God, which I would be glad to freely have this morning, and I don't. Speech is a blessing of God given so that we can communicate to each other and pray to Him and worship Him. And yet here in Babel, God confused the dialects of human speech for a particular purpose, to protect humanity from becoming so full of themselves that they would take refuge only in themselves. Now, God might have judged this going astray in Babylon the way he did in Noah's time with another flood. Maybe, he, maybe a local flood. He would have just said, hey, they've, they've lost it there. I need to come down. I need to wipe them out. 
But the Lord had already promised not to do that again. So instead of a destructive judgment upon them, he came on them in such a way that would divert them from this exaltation of humanism that they were devoting themselves to. His confusion of their speech was a punishment, but yet in it was the heartbeat of divine grace because God used that to accomplish his historic purposes. I'm going to have just two main points here today as we look at Genesis 11. I want to see it first teaching about the boastful height of human arrogance, and secondly, as it speaks about the quiet stroke of heaven's reversal. What about the boastful height of human arrogance? It's in verses 1 to 4 here. We find that grandsons and great-grandsons of Noah were colonizing. They were moving out into various areas of the earth. And they came to this plain of Shinar. The exact precise location of Shinar is maybe adjustable by a few miles. But interestingly, it's in the very same basic region as the Garden of Eden was once located many centuries before this. Men come here, and they unite in strength, and they, you know, you could see a few colonies or villages begin to develop and communication between them and say, hey, let's join our forces. Let's move closer together. And pretty soon they say, well, let's put a wall around our settlement. And all the ways in which a city gradually grows, a great city began to take shape there so that they would defend themselves. They would work together for common goods, maybe, you know, be able to plow more fields or something by combining their efforts. And we know that the generations were not yet developed far enough at this point in time that people had such obvious divisions as they do today of skin color or or ethnicity. There was a commonality. They looked roughly alike. And the, the things that differentiate people from the different continents had not yet had time in history to develop. But Here are people that say, well, we want to be different, and here's how we're going to be different. We're going to band together, combine our strength, and get glory for ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I think of the people that we met back in Genesis uh, 4, the end of chapter 4, when we read about the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of Cain, who exceeded in human culture, getting metal weapons and making music and doing a lot of advanced things, even though they were absolutely godless people. Cities are interesting places. Some of you love cities. Some don't like them at all. But there's no question that a city has a different dynamic about it. When you pack people closely together, of course, there are some there with peculiar skills, whatever it may be, in making something or uh, language or music or whatever it might be. And And the people with skills are able to teach others, and and cultural development tends to accelerate in a city. The economy of a city tends to be tightly woven, so everybody becomes somewhat interdependent on one another, and a few get great wealth, you know, the Donald Trumps who build the towers and name them after themselves, and, and many others become very poor, much more poor than they might be if they lived in rural villages. And cities are places where Universities and places of teaching develop and, and places of thinking and philosophy and art and literature and music all begin to thrive in a, in a great city when people come together. And this is implied here in Genesis 11.4 that, that it's all happening. 
as they say to one another, Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Well, the point is, we're already making a name for ourselves. We're already got a, a considerable bucket of greatness here. Let's work on it and increase it until people all around know about us and praise us and, yes, maybe are a bit intimidated by us so we can dominate and develop a security for ourselves. It makes me wonder whether they would have hired the same advertising company that devised the I Love New York campaign years ago, you know, I Love Babel or something. They probably had a jingle that they could sing and bumper stickers that they could sell to promote Babel, the great city. Well, we read at the physical center of this city, there was a tower. Now, you need not think of a skyscraper. There was no steel to build buildings with in those days, so the tower wasn't tall in the sense that we think would be tall or dominating. But in that day, a building that was anything more than, say, three floors was quite a dominating site. We do know that in this Middle Eastern region, the archaeologists can tell us that the Babylonians built unique towers that were called ziggurats. Strange word, but it was the name for the tower. It was usually a cylinder built, and they would, they would pack earth in the center and then build circular walls and build upward with stairways going around the outside of the tower. You might think of something like the Leaning Tower of Pisa if you would try to get a picture in your mind what this might look like. And this ziggurat that they built, we're told here, was made of bricks. Now, that's significant, and the text seems to develop that as if it were quite important. Well, why is that important? I I would think only because it's a man-made material. It's not natural stones from a riverbed, but rather something man makes 100%. So you've got a tower probably anywhere from three to seven stories high. That's about as high as they would go in that time, and that would have been imposing and amazing, a seven-story building. (coughs) A tower that is 100% the manufacture of man and his ingenuity. And it would stand out above this city the way the Washington Monument stands out above Washington, D.C. People would look at it. You know, country bumpkins from afar would, would, wow, look at that. That's pretty amazing. Those people must really have something there. And that's what they wanted, of course, that effect. Now, is there anything wrong with building a city or building an impressive building or tower? Of course not. God's not against architecture. He's not against cities. It was the motive and heart purpose that was wrong here. That Babel or Babylon was not God's city, but rather a place that was completely humanistic in every possible sense. Men were seeking security in themselves and in the massing together of large numbers of other people. They wanted to dominate others. They wanted to be vainly prominent in the eyes of others. (coughs) And the worst thing is that it's implied, (coughs) at least, that this tower reached to the heavens And that isn't a comment on how high it was. You know, don't think World Trade Center or anything like that. It couldn't have been that high. The point was that it looked to the heavens. The idea was that these ziggurats, as they were called, always had a temple 
built. In fact, their main purpose was to serve as a place of worship, and yet there's no hint at all that the worship being given here was the worship of the Holy Creator God. It was worship of man's gods and man's greatness. It, le- it reached to the heavens. It was trying to bring the heavens down to the level of human appreciation and understanding. I love this phrase that they tried to make a name for themselves. Almost every season, my wife tries to lure me into watching American Idol on TV. I last through one or two shows, and then I just can't stand it anymore. And you know what I'm talking about. Your laughter tells me you know that this show that the young adults come and they sing and they gyrate to the music and the cynical judgments of Simon Cowell, and and they're trying to become the next great pop star. Win the contest and you'll be a star. You'll be famous. And, you know, they talk, they have the interviews with the young people, and they go, oh, I'm just trying with all my might to win this. I want to be famous. I know God has given me this talent. And they're just driven by the idea that they might become the next famous person. There's an instinctive fear of anonymity in people that makes us do some kind of foolish things sometimes. We grab after preferments and honors. Sometimes if we can't find them legitimately, we'll find ways to do it illegitimately. The padding of resumes is uh, quite an quite a art in our society. To make yourself look as good as you can look so you can climb as high as you can possibly climb. Well, today we have great cities like Los Angeles and Tokyo and, and others that are putting up skyscrapers. And some places, I believe the tallest building in the world isn't even in North America. It's in Indonesia. And they're putting up building after building to say, look at us. You know, some of the oil-rich countries in the Middle East are building these shining cities full of skyscrapers as if to, as if to say, look, we've arrived. We are the great city of man. And if we have enough buildings that are that much taller than the former great cities of man, then we've taken over. Well, our advanced technology allows us to do these things, and not just in buildings either. In so many realms, as we boldly stride into areas like genetic engineering, and human beings begin to presume that they can clone life into their own designs and their own image, and our unbridled inventiveness goes out, into the earth as if to command and control the whole earth. We seem to be sure that if some government will only spend enough billions of dollars the right way, a panacea for every social vision and possibility can be obtained. And we can have the greatest educational system in the world or or the greatest health care in the world or whatever it might be. We just have to spend enough and be creative enough. Well, where does mankind get itself for all that? effort. It seems to me we end up melting the polar ice caps and losing control of the international stock market and seeing the raging political animosity between the haves and the have-nots of this world on a course of collision that no peace treaty is likely to be able to solve. Technology is a wonderful thing. Politics are a great endeavor. We can't condemn these endeavors as such. But technological pride and political pride 
are false gods. And when we trust those gods and pursue those gods and build towards those gods with our vanity, we are separating ourselves from the true God, the sovereign, transcendent God who alone gives to society a cohesive center for meaning, purpose, morality, and hope. Well, that's the vanity of man's pride and arrogance. But now in the second place, I want to look at verses 5 to 9 of this text and see a quiet stroke of heaven's reversal on all this. The text is reminding us that God, the Creator, is fully aware of this hubris of humanity, of man beating his chest and saying, I will be great. God's aware of it. And there's a subtle note of satire built into the way this description comes as Moses penned the words of this text. He was mocking these people when it says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Do you, do you hear the mockery in that? Man was building up and thinking, wow, you know, we've built as tall as man can go. And God was looking down, and he had to descend a great distance to get down to the level of this great accomplishment that man was so very proud of. It reminds me of things that are said about God in other places in Scripture. Isaiah 40 says, He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are to him as if they were grasshoppers. Psalm 2 even more clearly says God's reaction to kings and nations that throw off his rule and control and oppose him. Here's how God reacts in Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. You read here, it's as if the Lord has to get out his microscope to find this great tower that man thought was so splendid in every way. And then we hear of the Lord's determination regarding it, and it's a strange sentence. It says, behold, they are now one people, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. You might read that and think, aha, God is threatened. God is worried. Men are becoming his rivals. They are going to rise up and replace him somehow. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. God is not threatened by the doings of men or by their corporate potential or by their chest-beating might. The threat is not to the sovereignty of God here. It's to mankind himself. The Lord is saying these people will destroy themselves if they're allowed to go this way. They will merge all their powers and they will unite in a great hymn of praise and sing, Glory be to man, for man is now and will be forevermore. Amen to man. And God knew that was a way of destruction. God knew that people were trusting in urban development and soaring architecture and technical skills and political posturing, and they had no trust left for him. They were headed for a crash if they were left alone. And so we read here of God mercifully engineering a quiet crisis to divert men back into the direction he wanted them to go, settling the whole earth, spreading abroad, filling the earth with their colonies and their families, not rising up to praise one another this way. Who can describe what God did here? It was supernatural. It was all of a sudden, 
But somehow God who gave speech in the first place let the syllables, the words that were being formed on human tongues there at Babel be turned around. I, I can't figure out just how it must have come out, but I can imagine some mason there saying, hey, Henry, pass me another brick. And Henry suddenly says, parlez-vous Francais? What? I don't know how it happened, but the Lord confused their language. The glue of one language was gone. And the name Babel, the very name, means confusion. God confused rational speech that he had once given. He reshaped it so that man would not use it as a vehicle of self-destruction. And therefore, that temple of man that was being built there, we're told or implied here, was left as an unfinished ruin because man could no longer communicate one with the other. They desired glory for themselves and it turned to ashes in their mouths. You see the irony? What was it they wanted to do? They said, we don't want to be scattered. We want to be gathered together. And because they were gathered together for their own praise, God scattered them. The very thing that they didn't want to have happen. When mankind banishes God and his revealed will from their own society, society does not have a center anymore. There's no trunk to the tree. Can you imagine a tree that's all branches and no trunk? That's what Babel was. It it may have looked like a tree, but there was nothing to hold it together. And when we as human beings seek to somehow bring people together in an international fellowship, we find out the United Nations is great proof of it. Just study the history of the United Nations. I'm not saying it shouldn't exist, but the purpose it serves is a fairly limited purpose we've learned over the years, where somehow we try to get these different nations from to stop squabbling and to agree on one agenda. And, and what happens is, is such a diluted mishmash that it really has no effectiveness and no binding force in international life. We won't achieve unity by the United Nations. We need the transforming power of the Spirit of God that changes men's lives and gives them a new hope. And it's illustrated all too well in the society of today. We can't spend enough. We can't legislate enough. We can't build enough to achieve the benefits of a heaven on earth. We keep trying, but we can't do it. Any human society without God consciously at its center is inherently unstable in every way. Well, does this mean then that Genesis 11, we must leave it and walk away from this chapter with a totally negative picture. The picture is disintegration, fragmentation, confusion. Is that all there is to say, a negative message? I think not. I give you two other things as we close today. I want to remind you of a wonderful thing. The unity of the Bible is fantastic. For here we have this incident of God confusing men's languages But there's another great story and incident of history in the Bible of God uniting men's languages. Do you think of it in your mind? I'm thinking about the way God once again turned language inside out on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament church. 
when the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a message of such good news that it had to be told, and, and people were gathered together in Jerusalem from many, many different nations all throughout North Africa, all down into the Middle East and in the Mediterranean basin. There were many different nationalities in Jerusalem for the high holy days. And we read of the apostles speaking this wonderful new truth that Jesus who died as the sin bearer was now risen to life. And in Acts 2.6 it says, hundreds of people from far-flung nations heard the gospel of Jesus in their own language. Wonderful. That was God turning language around again, reversing the Babel from Babel. And he did it in New Testament history by the power of the preached gospel of the cross and resurrection. Now, humanity still longs to build a city to showcase our glory. But God said, don't pursue that. Don't pursue that city of the earth that's always going to pass away. What are the shining kingdoms? What are the shining cities of of humanity in time past? Mexico City, you know, in the ancient Central American civilizations, there were fantastic temples to the glory of man and false religion in areas like Mexico City. Now today, a society in total breakdown, a society where the police are the most corrupt people around. So much for the kingdom of man. God promised us, remember Hebrews 11, when the Lord looked back on the life of Abraham that we haven't even gotten into yet, and the Lord said Abraham looked forward to a city with real foundations whose architect and builder is God. Not the city of Babel. Not the cities of Egypt. That eternal city, that dwelling of God, that new heaven and earth that the end of Revelation tells us where we will finally dwell in the presence of our God. And secondly, as a final conclusion, what about this idea of men and women seeking a name for themselves? Well, ironically, the Lord addresses that too, and he doesn't waste any time doing it. He shows the vanity here in chapter 11 of people looking for a name for themselves. Just if you have to turn the page, look in your Bible to Genesis 12 too. This is as far as I'm going into Abraham's story. As God calls Abraham out of his land to lead him to a new place to do a venture of faith, look what he says to him in Genesis 12, 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. You see, the very thing that we cannot achieve for ourselves is the gift that God prepares for us. He freely gives us his everlasting name to wear into eternity, not as a badge of our striving for it or our greatness or our winning American idol, but the gift of his free grace that is claimed by faith in Christ. And so Christ calls men and women to abandon our Babylonian heart chase after achieving greatness in the city of man. If the world gives you honors, fine. But don't let those honors be the idol of your heart. Don't pursue after fame in human endeavors as if it would validate your, your time spent on earth somehow. It won't. No matter what you achieve in technology, 
or politics or government, all of which are necessary things that have their place, the honors they bestow cannot give you permanent security and will not endure one day for you beyond the grave. But Revelation, the very end of the Bible, holds this grand promise. Let this quote from the end of Scripture be our last word here on these beginning chapters of Genesis. Revelation 3, 12. Jesus is the spokesman as he promises this to his church. To him who overcomes, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, and I will write on him my new name. When you trust in Christ, when you stake your hope on that, that kingdom that is above every kingdom and the name that is above every name, the promise is that Christ will share his own glory and his own name with you. Your Babylonian heart could not desire or achieve anything that is better than that. Praise God. Father, we ask today. Thank you for these chapters we've considered together. Help us see how real and contemporary these lessons are. Our hearts, our desires, our strivings, our society is the same as it always has been. Thank you, our God, that you are the one that we must look to just as those folks needed to. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ you've made our hope absolutely clear. You've turned all our languages and all our words of praise towards one object, the one idol worthy of our adoration, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him. Amen.